the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So while the Federal Reserve is largely responsible for setting monetary policy, and, and let me be quick to add, there's nothing federal about the Federal Reserve, meaning that it is not a branch of the government. While its chair may be appointed by the president, um, they basically operate independently. We're probably one of the few countries, maybe Bob can address this, probably one of the few countries that has no central bank. So we allow the, the Federal Reserve to set monetary policy. And during times of inflation, one of the tools that they have at their disposal is to deal with the issue of lending rates, the overnight lending rate. This is what banks pay to borrow money um, and make adjustments there. The problem, of course, is that we've seen almost a habitual, uh, you know, procedure policy here since 2009 to maintain the lending rate so incredibly artificially low as to supercharge the amount of money that's in circulation, cheap money, more of it, that now puts the Fed in a very precarious position because one of the key tools that they typically, historically have at their disposal to help address some of these leading and lagging um, factors, well, essentially, they took it away from themselves. So, Bob Zadek, maybe you can touch on that point, address that point, along with this idea that how much of this is really artificially created by both government and Fed money policy. Well, artificial is an interesting word. Money is artificial. We have what's called fiat money. That is to say, um, we are required as a matter of law of if somebody wants to purchase something, we are required to accept in exchange dollars as legal tender. You must accept it. Now, what if... So, therefore, you are required to, if you will, put wealth or carry some of your wealth in the form of dollars, which means if the dollar is worth less tomorrow, it's like the government requiring you to buy a stock that, because of government policy, is going to go down in value. It's the same thing, because the money has no intrinsic value. It's not like gold itself, which can be made into jewelry or into uh, electronic gear or the like. Gold has a utilitarian value. Land has a utilitarian value. You can grow crops on it. You can rent it out. It has a utilitarian value. Money, the only value is when you accept coin or currency, when you accept money, you're doing so only on the assumption that somebody else tomorrow will accept the same dollar when you want to use that in payment. But if everybody decides that the dollar isn't worth much anymore, the music has stopped and you get no chair because there's no intrinsic value. 
food, water has a value. You can eat it and drink it. Money has no value other than the hope that somebody else will accept it. And when people stop accepting it, the money is worth less, and we have inflation. And, Greg, when we talk about inflation, it is really important for our audience to understand that when the government adopts a policy that will predictably cause inflation to occur, money to be the same dollar to have less purchasing power tomorrow than it does today. When the government is doing that, it is doing, and it's a phrase we hear all the time, picking winners and losers. Let me explain. I choose to put my retirement money into security stocks, stocks issued by well-capitalized companies. Now, therefore, if I have my wealth in stocks, if inflation occurs, stocks which change value moment by moment, stocks will automatically go up in value as inflation increases. Because if it's worth one dollar in 2021 dollars, and that dollar has less purchasing power, that same stock is going to be worth a dollar and twenty cents. So owning stocks is an automatic hedge against inflation. So I say to myself, insofar as my portfolio is concerned, I'm kind of immune from the ravages of inflation. But, but, what if I was a retiree? My income is in a pension, and often pensions are established in dollars. You get $5,000 a month, and that's not automatically pegged to inflation. So $5,000 a month in 2000 is worth less than $5,000 a month in 2021, which means there's a winner, Bob and perhaps Craig, who own stocks, and there is a loser, the pensioner who has a fixed income, or the pensioner who is living off bonds where the interest you get paid is fixed. So the very fact of inflation hurts those people whose income is fixed or relatively fixed and benefits, or at least doesn't hurt, those people who have assets or income that moves more directly with inflationary effect. So the government is beating the heck financially speaking, out of those on a fixed income, Social Security and pensions. Now, yes, Craig, you started the show by mentioning Social Security is adjusted for cost of living. And yes, it is, but only partially, and it trails. It's adjusted once a year, which means you suffer 11 months of devaluing uh, Social Security, and then you catch up only to start again, being behind the eight ball for the next 11 months till you catch up. And of course, what's problematic there, too, that a lot of folks are not aware of is that the calculations, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think during the 
Obama administration, the calculations were changed to eliminate out of all of the the um, categories that they look at when they factor in what inflation is going to look like. They have eliminated food and fuel from that list, which right now, as we're seeing, driving a lot of the inflationary uh, prices that we're, we're experiencing. So I, I guess if you're retired on a fixed income and don't eat or don't go anywhere, you're, you're probably <laughs> happy for the the 5.9 percent. But as to the rest of us, you're in trouble. Therefore, so therefore, uh, what have we learned so far, even on the few minutes we've discussed it? We've learned that when you read about inflation taking place in the economy, you can tell whether you're a winner or a loser or relatively unaffected by it. You So you will know that. And if you are a loser, it is the exact same thing as somebody imposed a 6% tax increase on you without your elected representatives even voting upon it. And you could say, there was this is just a tax increase. And remember, oh, uh, President Biden said, I'm not going to raise the taxes on people making less than $400,000. But he didn't say... I'm not going to indirectly tax them by causing inflation to occur. And inflation, it's not, and the phrase inflation occurring is a phrase I try not to use, even though I just did. Why do I not use it? Because it sounds like it just happens, like a hurricane happens. No, inflation is predictable, intentional, and the result of conscious government policy. It's like when a politician says, well, when he messes up, he says, well, mistakes have happened. Errors were made. Not I made a mistake. Errors were made as if it was made by somebody in the ether. Inflation doesn't happen. It is a government policy as conscious as a tax increase. And elected officials in the executive branch are directly responsible for inflation. They can't walk around as if they are victims like everybody else. No, they are the perpetrators. Well, and the other issue here at hand, and you've kind of touched on this, and maybe you can dive in a bit deeper when we come back after the break, and that is not only the notion that this is something that occurs, like turning on a light switch, but also this notion, and we've heard this phraseology used quite a bit, and I don't really recall past administrations uh, from moments of inflation during the Reagan years to even hyperinflation during the Carter years to ever suggest that this was a quote-unquote transitory event, suggesting that somehow, yeah, it happens, but it'll disappear really quickly. Uh, We're discovering in our conversation tonight with Bob Zadek, who, in addition to his background as an author and talk show host, uh, works in the commercial finance space. He's also coincidentally a lawyer and a certified public accountant, that this leading and lagging uh, aspect to money is is suggestive that it, while inflation does not occur overnight, but rather slowly creeps in, also the easing of inflation does not occur overnight, but it slowly creeps back out again. So are we being sold a a bill of goods when the president says he's working hard 
on reducing inflation or that this is just something that is, quote, unquote, transitory? We'll get to that part of the equation. <laughs> Our visit with Bob Zadek continues. By the way, information on the web, bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K, is program The Bob Zadek Show, heard Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The answer, it is must-tune-in radio, The Bob Zadek Show. Right now, we take this time out. And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Bob Zadek with us tonight online at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. We've been talking about inflation. We're all addressing it. We're all dealing with it. The president is promising that he's going to do something about it. But can he really? Bob Zadek has essentially already kind of answered the question related to how transitory is this, really? Uh, The suggestion that this appears overnight and disappears overnight is uh, not supported by history whatsoever. And I would wonder, does history support the notion that there's much, if at all, that can be done by a president to try to address inflation? If so, you know, Jimmy Carter might have (laughs) had himself a second term if that were the case. Well, inflation, um, the president doesn't have a lot of tools in his or her toolbox to deal with inflation directly. Um, that's because um, inflation, um, it, the Federal Reserve, which basically manages monetary policy, is and has been since its establishment in 1913, um, on Jekyll Island in Georgia. A wonderful book on the history of the Fed is called The Devil of Jekyll Island, a scary title, uh, but apt, no doubt, uh, nevertheless. So the Federal Reserve is structurally independent of the president, though the president gets to appoint the chairman of the Federal Reserve, but once appointed, the chairman is supposed to act independently. So the president, other than persuasive powers doesn't control monetary policy. Um, So the president doesn't have a lot of tools in the toolbox that can directly, by fiat, by executive order, if you will, change the trajectory of inflation. And by the way, Craig, before we run out of time, there's another rather insidious byproduct of inflation. We have talked about increasing uh, price of things because the dollar is worth less. Well, in our economy, lots of businesses will use inflation as a cover to increase prices that they otherwise might have resistance to. So if you were selling a consumer good breakfast cereal to pick one totally at random, uh, and you kind of would like to increase your bottom line profits, what better time to increase the cost of your product by four or five or six percent? Nobody would complain because they just assume it's a result of inflation. But in reality, it's just a question of you're making more profit on the same product. So are there some companies, Bob, that right now are doing that to kind of make up for the losses of 2020? Because why wouldn't you? In fact, it's probably management malpractice not to. If you could increase your increase your selling price without being punished by consumers, you have to be crazy not to do it. But a consumer can't tell how much of the increased 
cost of gasoline is directly the result of inflation, and how much is the decision made in the boardroom, hey, let's use this as cover to make more profit. It's just it's the way management ought to work. So we have that going on, which means the price of goods and services to some degree, not measurable, but it's real, is higher because of businesses using the cover of inflation to bury modest price increases. And remember, the cost of one or 2% of the product by a company has a profound effect in dollars on the bottom line. Oh my goodness, management looks like heroes. And all they've done is hide behind the cover of inflation compliments of the government. It's like using smoke to hide. You blow smoke and then you hide in the smoke and nobody can find you. And so there you have it. Yet another detriment uh, of inflationary um, spirals in the country. Well, and the interesting thing is that I, I fear the current administration may be blowing a little bit of smoke trying to hide in, in all of that, but reality is catching up, and as we've learned from Bob Zadek today, printing more money, flooding more money into the system is not going to make inflation begin to disappear, but rather has the greater potentiality to just exacerbate a bad situation, making the bad even worse. Bob Zadek unpacks these issues and many more every Sunday morning on his syndicated talk show, The Bob Zadek Show, heard locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area on 860 AM, The Answer. We invite you to check that out. Details and resources available on the web at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K dot com. Six o'clock from KFAX as we thank Bob for his time. Let's uh, thank our friends over at the KFAX Traffic Center for this update on your Tuesday ride home. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. What has Frank Peretti been up to? He, the New York Times best-selling author of such favorites as This Present Darkness, Piercing the Darkness, The Oath, The Visitation. Well, Frank has been busy, and now he's back with a brand new novel entitled Illusion, already on the New York Times best-selling list. And Frank Peretti, is always great to have you on the program. Well, man, I am really glad to be with you. Thanks a lot. And delighted to have you back with yet another great, exciting novel. This one, kind of an interesting one, and I think one that, in reading through this, even though I think perhaps, Frank, a lot of us would consider your work as sort of a, a novels targeted toward adults, the aspect of magic that you bring into this new novel, I think, has got something for everybody. Oh, it's a, it's a really cool story. Um, I keep imagining it like a movie. I, I can really see it as a family kind of movie, too, it's just got some great visuals and with all the magic tricks and the effects and uh, the characters are delightful too. Hey, give us kind of an overview, and of course we never want to give away the plot. But as I understand it, um, you you follow the life of a husband and wife team who suddenly, in a tragic car accident, the wife dies, or so we think. Or so we think. And Dan, this Dane and Mandy—they've been a magic act for forty years. But they're separated, of course. There's a terrible car wreck, and Mandy is supposed to be killed. Dane retires, moves up to Idaho, gets a ranch, and he just kind of grieves his loss, wondering what in the world he's going to do, and he misses her so much. In the meantime, Mandy, who, well, we thought she was dead, but damn, it's one of those uh, weird, mysterious, science fiction kind of things that we don't know what in the world's happened. It's part of the mystery. She ends up as the 19-year-old girl she was back in 1970. And here she is in 2010. 
And uh, she thinks she's crazy. Everybody else does, too. She ends up in a mental ward for a while because here's this girl in 2010 thinking that she's from 1970. And, uh, well, she gets away from the mental ward. And she's a magician by trade. She does magic tricks. She did from junior high and high school and was in talent shows and things. So she goes out on the sidewalk and starts doing magic tricks. Uh, for people just trying to get a few tips to survive because she can't get a job or anything. Well, while she's out there on the sidewalk, she runs into this 60-year-old man who happens to be a pretty good magician himself. He begins to mentor her and tell her how to perform and how to uh, increase her skills and so forth, and so begins this relationship. But, of course, what you have here is Mandy, who thinks she's crazy because she thinks she's from 1970, and then you have Dane, who has just lost his wife and is grieving for his wife, and now he's looking at a girl who's the spitting image of the girl he met and fell in love with 40 years ago. And so now you have the mystery and the romance all beginning to wind up. And uh, so here we go. You know, what's fascinating about this, this journey, Frank, that you take us on inside the pages of Illusion that really, in many respects, sort of transcends time and space, something that ironically I think all of us have have dreamed of doing either for the pure fascination of it or maybe with the thought in mind of being able to go back and change our path or right some wrongs or or somehow be able to have a, an ultimate uh, better outcome uh, of the future. That's really interesting. Uh, that was part of what goes into this when I was writing the thing is going back over my life and, and the places I've been and how much things have changed over the years. Um, for instance, Mandy is suddenly in a world of cell phones and computers and uh, wireless networks. Uh, none of that stuff existed in 1970. And um, it's just amazing how fast things can change. And what would we have done differently? <laughs> when you start playing around with time, all kinds of questions come up. Oh, undoubtedly so. And then, of course, on top of that, you, you mix in this element of magic. Now, talk to me about that, because I've, I've got to imagine, just based on your, your previous bestsellers down through the years, which folks are all familiar with, going back to this present darkness and so forth, you obviously have a broad and very fertile mind, most of that concentrated in the supernatural and looking at you know what goes on in, in the other realm that, that we're all present in. Uh, and yet into this novel, you fold in the fascination of magic. Was this something that attracted you, Frank, even as a kid? Yeah, I've always, uh, I've never been a magician myself, but of course, I always like a good magic act. And you can't beat a good magic act for uh, visual stuff. It can be very interesting to watch. And uh, I was dealing with time warps and interdimensional travel and all kinds of really interesting things that, oh man, it works perfectly when you have a magician who suddenly, as Mandy, in Mandy's case, and is able to perform illusions that nobody can explain. And it all ties into the uh, mysterious scientific thing that's going on in the background and who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. It's a, it's a gradually building mystery. And so it's all organic to the story and highly visual and fun at the same time. And toward that degree, I mean, you don't approach this in the novel casually. I mean, you, you actually brought in a professional magician, I understand, to serve as kind of a consultant. So that as you're working at bring, bringing the visual to life through words, you, you were really looking for a great degree of realism here, weren't you? 
Oh, my. That's what made it so much fun, uh, doing all the research for this. Tony Brent, he's a magician down in Orlando, Florida. He plays, uh, performs all the time at uh, a place called Wonderworks in Orlando, Florida. Wonderful Christian brother, and he is absolutely hilarious. Now, he's really funny. And he does some amazing illusions just uh, as a matter of riotous performance. <laughs> and, uh, oh, he spent a whole lot of time with me and gave me a whole list of books to read. And uh, I bought magic tricks, and I read books, and I subscribed to Magic Magazine for two years. And uh, it's really a fascinating field, and I really respect these men and women that get into this field who are really good at what they do because it is hard. I tried to learn a couple magic tricks myself and made a fool myself. <laughs> <laughs> it, it takes a lot of practice to do what they do. And yet what's interesting about all of this is that even though we're watching magic and it takes us to a whole different realm that clearly uh, tricks our eyes, tricks our mind, that, that sense of what really isn't, but they're trying to convince us that it is, uh, there are some parallels to that in the spiritual realm, aren't there? Well, there's, yeah, the whole point of uh, illusion, like uh, Mandy and Dane spent their lives creating illusions and uh, entertaining people with the idea that, oh, they're seeing something that isn't really the way they think it is. Uh, at the same time, they're kind of trapped in a weird situation where they're actually part of an illusion themselves. And that speaks symbolically of our struggles here in the spiritual realm where we are trying to discern truth from error and often we are in a situation in our lives where we think well what does the scripture say there is a way that seems right but the end thereof is death um deception can set in and we can think we're doing okay but things aren't the way we think they are and of course ironically then in that regard i guess the the, the great master illusionist would be satan himself uh, who, you know, from the very beginning there in the Garden of Eden, questioning hath God said, is it all that it really appears to be? Uh, and, and immediately to get our minds kind of thinking down a different track, that uh, we mix the, the differences between what is reality and what is fantasy, or maybe uh, more appropriately so in the spiritual dynamic, uh, what is good and what is evil. Well, exactly, and that's part of the, one of the themes of the illusion is Mandy is the one who's lost in this huge illusion where she doesn't know who she is or when or where she is doesn't and uh, it's part of the struggle for her to weave through all of this and uh, gain as a type of Christ becomes her guiding light and if she just kind of keeps aiming for him and follows his counsel she gets through all this web of deception and so it's an interesting symbolism that runs through the book she's uh, like I said in the book she's like a salmon swimming up river she is going to get there and nothing's going to stop her and often that's exactly the way we are in our walk and our struggles and so forth we just have that goal of heaven in mind and with God to guide us and Jesus as our Lord and our wisdom, we we weave through it, you know, and we withstand all the deception and we finally get there. Ooh, that's and, cool. That's a great thought. <laughs> and, of course, one of the exciting things here, too, as much as we, we began talking about that sense that this is a journey inside the pages of illusion that, that sort of transcends time and space and, and something that we've all dreamed of doing when we can go in and manipulate things to change the outcome, where in real life, while we can't do that, 
Uh, we, we can change the outcome insofar as the end results. I think about man's separation from God based on our sin. And while there's no way to go back and undo the ways in which we have offended a holy and righteous God, there is a way that we can nevertheless escape, escape the penalty that we are due through the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross. And that is so precious. And you know, it's the grace of the Lord that follows us. The fact that we are the righteousness of God in Christ, that we are, you know, I, I like to think of King David, you know, who stumbled in so many ways. It wasn't it wasn't just with Bathsheba. He, he, he was a man of clay like any of the rest of us, and yet he had a heart for God. And God recognized that and always honored David as a man after his own heart. And uh, that's the kind of guy I want to be. I, I, I stumble in many ways, but I walk in the grace of God. I walk in the righteousness that's, uh, that, that's mine in Christ. And, oh, man, when I get to the end of my life, I want the Lord to be able to say, Frank did a good job. He, <laughs> he messed up here and there, but you know what? He's a man after my own heart. Our conversation today with New York Times best-selling author Frank Peretti, the latest book entitled Illusion, now available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as on Amazon.com. We'll take a brief time out and come back to more of our conversation with Frank Peretti as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts, along with our very special guest today, we are delighted, as always, to have New York Times best-selling author Frank Peretti join us on the program. This time around, we're talking about Frank's latest book, just newly released. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order it, of course, online. Recently made its way right up to the New York Times bestseller list, as we would have anticipated from Frank, a new book entitled Illusion. Interesting in this novel, as we were mentioning before the break, Frank, because you, you, you draw in a great deal of magic into the book, and so there's that sense of escapism and yet some of the some of the strong realities that we have to deal with in life and and in that regard uh, very much like your previous best-selling novels where you've warned us of some of the the realities that we face particularly as believers whether we're dealing with the reality of the danger of of, of the spread of new ageism in our society today or just the reality of the, the spiritual warfare the spiritual minefield that we find ourselves in oh yeah uh, every book i've written it you can almost trace where I've been in my walk with the Lord and the things that have concerned me that I felt I should write about. Uh, just check the books like the darkness books, This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness. Those were directly about spiritual warfare, addressing the encroachment of neo-paganism culture and how demonic, you know, demonic spirits and their influence can be a reality. When I wrote the dissertation, I was writing about our our questions, our doubts, our struggles with our faith that happen sometimes, and how we kind of want to have a Jesus of our own making who gives us what we want instead of making us take our vitamins and finish our dinner, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I wrote I, in this book, Illusion, I just wanted to write about the beauty of marriage and how God gave us marriage and, and a beautiful wife as such a wonderful symbolism of Jesus and his church. Um, it's a beautiful pattern. You mentioned earlier about a number of your films, Frank, that have made it to the big screen. I think of The Visitation, which was adapted for film back in 2006, others as well. Uh, kind of a, a passion of yours, as I recall, I think I read somewhere that you had studied film and screenwriting at UCLA. This new book, it sounds like it's got tremendous potential to make it to the big screen and, and with a great degree of excitement, given um, all of the wonderful uh, magic that uh, takes place throughout the pages of Illusion. 
Well, this book would make an absolutely tremendous movie because it has all the right ingredients. It has adventure. It has a deep and wonderful, very meaningful romance in it. It'd be a great movie. It'd be a good movie for the family, too. Uh, Good feel, good story. This is, you know, obviously a great reward for many authors to see their um, books eventually make it to the big screen. Even though there's sometimes frustration in the in the way in which things kind of lose something in the translation. For you, was this a passion from the very beginning? In other words, even when you sat down and wrote some of your early big bestsellers, like this present darkness and and piercing the darkness, to go back a better part of twenty years, was there an idea even behind uh, those books at the time that you'd hoped that they would make it to the big screen? And that that dream kind of stayed with me even into my adult years, and so that was the way I was going. But of course, that is such a very very difficult and complicated business. God, in his divine plan, decided that uh, I should just be a novelist, and so that's what I'm doing today. Uh, well, it's a lot cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, along the way, you, you get the pleasure once in a while of seeing one of your works to, in fact, to make it to the big screen. Now, when you are not busy uh, writing or adapting your books for the big screen, uh, do you still fiddle around with the banjo? understand at one time you used to play uh, a pretty mean banjo in the bluegrass group. I sure did. I played in a group called Northern Cross, and we were a band for nine and a half years. And Yeah, I played the banjo, and, uh, well, I don't know, I listened to our CD, and I guess I was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> now, does, now does, does Barbara still let you uh, break the banjo out once in a while and do that? Can you play it around the house okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was just, I had it up this morning, as a matter of fact. I was trying to get back into shape again. I have another little gig coming up where I have to play, and so, man, I got to get it out of mothballs and get my fingers going again. So, that was a lot of fun getting that out. That's fun. That, that's good. You know, it gives you a nice, uh, nice break, too, from, uh, from the writing and, and something that you obviously have a joy and passion for. Uh, you are um, kind of a native to the Pacific Northwest, as I recall, and you're still living up in Idaho, aren't you? Right, yeah, I'm up in the Idaho Panhandle. Um, if you have any idea, you can see Cord Lane or Kellogg on the map. I'm up in that neck of the woods. Nice part of the country, and, uh, you know, you're not too far away from the action if you want it, and yet a great way to get away in God's country and, and uh, be amongst the, uh, the tall ones, as they say. Oh, yeah, well, it's real pretty right now. We're finally getting into springtime, and, uh, boy, I can look out my window here and see snow-capped mountains, and then there's forest, and there's a river down below the house that's running real high now because the snow's melting. So. That's, a, that's a great inspiration, isn't it, for a writer, to have that kind of a, an environment in which to, to uh, be able to sit down and kind of uh, commune with God and nature and then uh, let the creative juices flow, isn't it? Well, there's such a wonderful feeling of serenity here, and just to walk out and hear the birds singing, and right now the, the blossoms are bursting out, and ooh, man, they're pretty. So it's a continual show out there. The Lord's always doing something. What's, um, what's anything in the works coming up now that you've got this one to press and already uh, made it to the New York Times bestseller list? Uh, do authors uh, think that far ahead? Uh, what do you look for when you say, okay, time to sit down and start putting another one down on paper? Well, what I do, what I'm doing right now, is I'm just doing a lot of listening and thinking and praying and sorting things out. I'm exploring the church and its history and where it is now and where it's going. And I have some questions I'd like to grapple with and try to figure out. And I, I, I try to 
discern the mind of God in terms of what he wants me to write about. So it's not just it's not just necessarily spontaneous whatever hits the top of your mind. I mean, in the end there is a theme here in the sense that you want your readers to walk away both having been entertained and hopefully to get them to ask a lot of the right questions in 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 the realm toward where the Lord would want us to be thinking. Yeah, that's right. I, I view myself as uh, I guess I'm a builder and an equipper. I try to feed and equip and build the body of Christ and just keep them thinking, keep them growing. And I do that through stories, just the way Jesus did. Yeah, good example. And and, and obviously a wonderful way to illustrate because it, it takes us into a realm that we can all either escape to or relate to. And at the very least, put us into that place where we start thinking and praying um, and, and hopefully really being earnest about uh, seeking after God. In the end, Frank, for those that are going to run out and pick up a copy of your new book, Illusion, what do you hope that they take away from this particular book? Well, I think it's best said that there's a guy who wrote to me on Facebook, and he read the book, and he was married to his wife for 31 years. Well, he still is. <laughs> but he said, you know, I really enjoyed your book. And he, he named his wife, and she, her name is Tammy. And he said, you know, your book helped me to really appreciate my wife all the more. And I thought to myself, well, now, there's somebody who really got the point of this book. <laughs> so is there, a, is there a big part of you and Barbara in this book? I mean, is there a lot of inspiration taken from your own relationship inside the pages of Illusion? Most certainly. I mean, we don't have the same story as Dave and Mandy do, but the emotions, the love, the uh, devotion is still there. And there are a few little snapshots of Barb in there that I borrowed from our real life, and I gave those to Mandy. So... Yeah, I, I drew upon our relationship and my own feelings uh, and my own reflections of my love for her when I wrote this book. Does she get a, a chance to see that? In other words, before you say, okay, honey, I'm, I'm sending the manuscript off, does she get a chance to set eyes to that so she can kind of pass to, pass the official approval? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's the first one who gets a chance to read it. Actually, I read it to her as we're lying in bed there before we turn the lights off. If I've got a new chapter, I'll, I'll read it to her and... Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> is there a sense, Frank, uh, that as you do so, if Barbara gives thumbs up, you know that you're heading in the right direction? Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's times when she'll say, uh, she'll say if she doesn't get something or something went by her, then that helps me to fix it, too, and make sure that it works. And especially, you know, especially when one of my characters is a woman. Um, it's very helpful for me, a guy, to have a woman reading and hearing this to help me uh, stand track as to how a woman deals with problems in life and how she thinks and what's important to her. Absolutely. And, and then what yeah. a great way to not only celebrate your own relationship, but then, as you say, when somebody is uh, emailing you or writing you to say, gee, Frank, the new book really helped me in my marriage relationship, uh, what a delightful outcome. I know that in the end it's got to be the heart's desire of every novelist like yourself not only to entertain people, but to challenge them, and if somebody can grow and learn from a, a book like Illusion, even more so, then it's worth all the effort. Exactly. Yeah, I, I need to know that I'm making a difference out there, so it means a lot when people write or they come up to me and, and tell me what, how the books have touched their lives. That's what makes the whole business worthwhile. That's what keeps me doing it. And clearly for all the millions that have gone out and picked up copies of your books down through the years, uh, Frank, you're making a difference and you're bringing a great deal of joy to all of us, and uh, no doubt readers of the new book will feel the same. Already on the New York Times bestseller list, the book, Illusion, its author, our guest on this edition of Lifeline, Frank Peretti. Frank, as always, a delight to have you on the show. Thanks for dropping by to visit. My privilege and an honor, too. Thank you very much. 
Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.